is risen. He is indeed risen. So praise be to God. Also, for those of you who are used to, uh, are here normally, and are kind of like, oh, wow, he wore a suit. Don't get used to that, okay? So (laughs) it's usually either really good news, because you're getting married, or really bad news, because it's a funeral, or just Easter morning, so... We're going to go to the Lord once more in prayer, and then we're going to go to His Word. Would you join me? Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are the God who reigns over all things. Father, all of us are born sinners. We've shown that in our lives, and all of us are destined to die. All of us have an appointment with death. We can't reschedule. There's no changing this. There is a day in which each of us will certainly die. And Father, we we know from the things that you teach us in your word that if, if Christ had not come that that death would be the first of two deaths, for we would die in our sins. On that last day, we would stand before you and be judged for all of our sins. That on that day, there would be no escaping and no hiding and no justifying, but that we would be guilty as charged. But we thank you that you are a God of mercy, one who does not desire the wicked to perish, but for all to come to the knowledge of the truth, So we thank you that you sent your son Jesus. And we remember on this day that that he did indeed die for sinners like us. But we also remember and rejoice that he was risen from the dead. Victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And that now in him we can have forgiveness of sins. So we pray that in our time together this morning as we come to your word, that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe the truths that you have spoken to us. Father, move in our midst this morning. Meet us wherever we are, whether we are far from you or whether we are closer than we've ever been. Father, be near to us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are some of the rawest and most memorable words that Jesus spoke on the day that he was crucified. There, hanging upon the cross, he was bloodied and beaten and alone surrounded only by those who would mock him. And he cried out and asked, God, why have you forsaken me? If we know much about Jesus, it seems like a pretty good question. Why would God the Father forsake Jesus, his son? Why would the Father turn his back on Jesus, the perfect man? Why would he, the only one who has ever gone through his whole life and not sinned, 
be treated as a sinner? Why would the one who did nothing but love people be executed as a prisoner? In case you aren't familiar with the story of Jesus, let me bring you up to speed as to where we'll be this morning and and where we hear those words of Christ. So Jesus was the eternal Son of God who came to earth, born of a virgin to escape the curse of sin. He then lived a perfect life, never sinning, but always living a life of worship to His Father. He performed miracles, not because He was trying to start a circus or get a bunch of people to follow Him around, but rather He was doing it to prove that He had the authority to say and do what He claimed to come and do. During His life, He predicted his own death, and he also predicted his own resurrection. And many believed in him, but many did not. Many hated him, because Jesus wasn't there to to butter them up. He wasn't blowing any smoke. He came and he spoke truth and told people that they were sinners. And none of us really like to hear that we're sinners. And because of that, the religious leaders of the day accused him of blasphemy and they handed him over to be crucified. They beat him and mocked him, forced him to carrying his own cross. I'm going to read from you just a bit of Matthew's account of what happened. You've heard some of this this morning, but listen as I read from Matthew 27. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, he divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, And those who passed by mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. We'll let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's these last words of Jesus that we will be considering for the rest of our, our morning together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say those words? What was he thinking? when he was on the cross. Well, I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but Jesus is actually quoting a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament when he says those words. He's he's quoting a psalm that was 
written about him and pointed to the fact that he, an innocent one, would be forsaken. He was not being forsaken for his sin, but actually he was being forsaken for for our sin. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you if you would turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it's kind of right in the middle, book of Psalms. It's a big one. Psalm 22. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one provided for you in front. It'll help you as I'm going through, because I'm just going to read the verses and talk about what they mean. It's on page 457 of the Bibles that are in the, the pews in front of you. As you turn there, the, the Psalms are a collection of hymns written by several of God's prophets. One of these men was a king named David who wrote Psalm 22, the one they'll be looking at. And in this psalm, David is recounting some kind of overwhelming trial that he had faced and that God had delivered him from. It might have been a situation with, with Saul or maybe Absalom or maybe something else. We don't, we don't know what it was exactly, but whatever it was, dude, was, he was, it was hard. It was brutal. But in the end, God proved faithful to deliver his servant. But there's, there's something unique about this, this Psalm 22. Because it's not just recounting some of David's sufferings, but it's also a, a prophetic psalm. It's a, a foretelling of the future, as we will see, in, in almost a, a play-by-play, high-definition account of, of what happened to Jesus when he was crucified. And one of the amazing things about this Psalm 22 that we're going to see here, much like other prophetic literature is that this was written all kinds of way before Jesus came. This is like a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth. And as as we work through this psalm, we're going to see that David as a man, and ultimately Jesus as the man, is, is struggling in the midst of this trial to hold on to hope. And it's going to be as if he looks down at at the horrific circumstances that are around him, and then his, his eyes are going to be drawn up to his, his, his heavenly comfort. And you're going to see that pattern all the way through the psalm. It's as if he's looking down and then looking up, down and then up, down and then up to God crying out for help. It's like he's torn between two worlds, the world that he's in and the world to which he belongs trusting that God will deliver him in the midst of it all. So let's begin by looking at the first two verses here. Him looking down, away from heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David's prayer here reveals a heart that, that, that appears forsaken by God. And again, we're not sure exactly what was going on, but he felt alone and forgotten and betrayed. And if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, we've, we've all felt like this at times. And some of us have felt this way for a long time. It's like God's not even there. And if, if he is there, it doesn't seem to be listening. It's like there's this 
this cloud of, of despair that hangs over our hearts. There are days that we wish could be blotted from our, our memory. And we ask, why? Why do these days of darkness come? And sometimes we, we clearly do sinful things in this life that have drastic consequences on our lives. Some of my darkest days have, have come because of my own hand. And sin that I've committed and against God or against others, and have, there have been hard results for that. If I were to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I could, I could surely list thousands upon thousands of reasons why God would be, would be just in forsaking me. And all of us, I think, if, if we're seeing things clearly, could probably do the same. We know that we are not perfect people. We're liars. We're deceivers. We're hypocrites. Sure, we might dress up nice, but we're just a bunch of dressed up sinners. We're gossips. We have judgmental hearts towards others. And if God were fair and he gave us what we deserved, he'd surely forsake us because we have forsaken him so many times. But suffering in this life doesn't always just come directly because of our sins. Sometimes God just ordains the valley. Sometimes we find ourselves in, in the valley of confusion. And, and even with the help of others, we can't put a finger on why it's happening. Job knew about those days. The importance of David's life, he knew them too. And most of us can probably relate. But when Jesus was on the cross and he quoted these words and cried out this prayer, he, he wasn't doing the same kind of soul searching that, that you and I must do in these kinds of situations. Because for Jesus, he had no sin of his own to be forsaken for. He was innocent. He was blameless. He'd never lied. He'd never lusted. He'd never left duties unkept. He was the faithful one who was still forsaken. But his being forsaken was unlike anything the world has ever known. And that, that, that moment on the cross, God the Father turned his face away from God the Son. He did not reply to his cries. His tears fell unnoticed. His, his prayers turned to dust in his mouth. It's as if the clouds, his, his prayers were just radiating off of them. The God that he had eternally dwelt with as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfect relationship of love, all of a sudden, the Father stiff arms the Son and does not hear his prayers. He forsakes him. The inseparable relationship of the Trinity was for a moment disrupted. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's hold the tension for a moment and go on and we'll come back and answer in a moment. But in the midst of this overwhelming prayer, he then looks up. Verse 3 of Psalm 22. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. 
they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here we see that David goes from gawking at his sorrowful situation and he looks to the place from where his help comes. He did the only thing that he or any of us could ever do to find hope. He looks, he looks to heaven. And did you, did you notice what word was echoed throughout those three verses? Five times. You, 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 you. He looks to the heavens and says, you, Lord. He takes his eyes off of the circumstances and puts them on the only one who can give him any help. And as he, he does, he focuses on two particular things about the Lord. The first is that he remembers what God is like. Notice that you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Even in the midst of this dark, dark season, he says, God, there is none like you. You are perfect in all your ways. You are good and you do good. And no matter what, you will get my praise. Even in the midst of my pain. Just like Job, who in the midst of his said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So when we are in pain and we suffer, we must look up and we must remember what God is like. One of the best medicines for a weary soul is, is to fix our eyes upon God who is unlike us and who is greater than any situation or circumstance that we may find ourselves and, and, and cry out and say, God, you are holy. You are perfect. You are good. You are good and you, you do good. It is deadly for us to keep our eyes on ourselves and on our circumstances in the midst of trial. If you remember, Peter was just fine walking on the water until he took his eyes off of the one who was sustaining him. So he remembers what God is like, and then secondly, he remembers what God has done, which is directly tied to what God is like, that because he's good, he, he does good. David remembers it, and he looks to the past, and he talks about the way that, that his his fathers who's gone before him, that they, they looked to God and how God had proven faithful to them. And once again, this is what we must do in the midst of our greatest pains. Because it is easy when we are getting our faces kicked in in life to be here and just take beating upon beating and forget the fact that God is above it all and that God has proven faithful time and time and time and time and time again. And when we look back to His goodness and His graciousness in our lives, it lifts our hearts and reminds us that He who was faithful yesterday will be faithful again today. Well then, if that is true, that God is good and He does good, then, then how could God forsake Jesus? If the Father is good and does good, then, then why would He forsake His own Son? This is where we must remember that Jesus willingly laid down his life and endured the suffering and the punishment for our sins. Because God is good, no sin will go unpunished. None of them. All the ones we're hiding, even now, 
He sees and He knows. And we may be able to fool everyone around us. Preacher and friend, even spouse. Maybe even ourselves. But on that last day, we will not fool the Lord. He knows and He sees. But that's why Christ came. He took the judgment for us on the cross. The reason He was forsaken was for our sake. He was forsaken for sinners. That we might be freed from the penalty of sin and be reconciled to God. Jesus was forsaken for our sake. But the trial goes on down again into verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, make mouths at me and wag their heads. Trust in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, we see David overwhelmed with his, not just his situation, but now coming into view is, are, are the, the persecutors who are there mocking his faith in the God who he can't see. They point their finger and they scorn his faith. And David here feels weary from it all. He says he's low as a worm. He feels subhuman. It's like he's not worth anything at all. He's tired and he's weak and he's vulnerable. And they're kicking him while he's down. He's like a pinata that's been just shredded with their mockery. You ever felt like that before? You feel like you're trying to trust God, but your situation has not changed. And all those who, who are around you, they just wag their heads. How's that Jesus thing going for you? You found any unicorns too? How about Bigfoot? How's it going? Where's your God? Has he showed up? Not yet. It's because he's not coming. But you just wake up, buddy. Few things sting more than when people mock you for trusting God. Especially when the God in whom you're trusting is silent in the midst of the mocking. Those are dark moments. And David knew them. But none has known the dark day like Jesus did. He was forsaken like none has ever been. Yes, on the cross, Jesus was inflicted with torment that even the best attempts in, in cinema cannot capture. He was ferociously assaulted in a physical body. But what he experienced on the cross was darker than any of that. Because on that day, the Father made he who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That Jesus, who had never sinned, felt the weight of every sin that had ever come and every sin that would ever come. They were like tidal waves of wrath that fell upon him. The innocent one became sin for us. He knew the dark day. And he was mocked. He was mocked even by the very ones that he came to save. Even some of you in this room, 
I know in my days before being a Christian, I loved making fun of Christians. I just thought they were stupid. Uh, and we still do a lot of stupid stuff that makes us easy targets, okay? So stop that. But in, I, just, I just thought Christians, I just thought it was the dumbest thing. So you talk to a God who you don't see? I mean, that's just weird, dude. Like, what's going on? But I was blind. I was blind by my sin. I was prideful. I thought I knew how to run my life. But I did not. And I should have been forsaken. But there was one who was forsaken. Forsaken for our sake. And in the midst of the mocking, Jesus looks to the Father. He looks back up, verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. You see that? Be not far, trouble is near. There is none to help. Again here back to David in his trial. He, he lifts his head toward heaven to find truth. And he confesses that he is dependent upon God just as he's always been. And this is a really important thing for us to be sober about in our lives. That, that God made us as dependent creatures. He, David says, you made me trust you. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth. What that, what that means is from our umbilical cord, every bright, every bite, every breath, every beat of our hearts are all dependent upon God. God has made us to be dependent upon Him. So one of the most sad and certain to fail strategies in the midst of trial is to say that I'm going to not talk to God and I'm going to forget Him and I'm going to push Him away rather than, than draw near. There's nothing down that road. There's nothing there. But, but we, in, in everything, including our spiritual life, are dependent upon God. Things are not okay between us and God apart from Jesus. But that is why Christ came. He came to save us. He came to give life when we could find it nowhere else. There's a scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus was, was teaching some really hard stuff. And people were saying, I'm out of here. This is, this is too much. And they were just peeling out left and right. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them in John 6, he says, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We are a needy people. And that is why when trouble is near, we must cry out to God through Christ, because there is nobody else who can help. And I wish I could go on and on about this, but I'm just going to say this right here. So don't forget this, please. That all of our trials and tribulations and suffering in this life are intended to train us to look to heaven for help. 
That's why they're there. They are designed intentionally to make you not trust yourself. They're designed intentionally to make you really aware that you can't do it, but that you need a Savior. You need help. God is merciful to give you trials. It's it's the most loving thing that He can do. It would be unloving of Him to leave us trusting ourselves. Psalm 22, 12, now down through 18, he looks, he looks down again. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So we see here there's, there's strong and intimidating enemies that are surrounding him and staring him down like a, like a helpless deer left alone to fend for himself before a pack of wolves. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. His energy here is is spent. He feels like he's beyond help. His body is beaten to the point of being unrecognizable. Of Jesus, in Isaiah 52, he says that his body was broken and that he was, you couldn't even tell who he was anymore. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples. So not only was his body broken, but but his, his heart was broken too. I mean, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples. One of his other disciples uh, denied him three times. And all the rest of them fled from him in his greatest time of need. And this, this section in particular, 12 through 18, is like just a snapshot of what was happening on that cross from when David penned it a thousand years later. That he was surrounded by wolves and, and, and he's laying there with his heart broken. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. In John 19, he cried out and said, I thirst. I've been dehydrated and fulfilling the scriptures here. And then in verse 16 through 18, he says, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. It's a striking word picture here that that describes the way that this innocent one one is attacked. Now, most of our translations there say something like, they have pierced my hands and my feet. You may notice most of the translations also have a little note to give a different rendering at at the bottom. So Jesus certainly had his hands and his feet pierced. That is how he died. But but the Hebrews says something more like, like like a lion, they pin my hands and my feet. So the picture is like, like a, pe- a, a pre- prey that's been overtaken by this lion who's pinned him down and is about to devour him. He says that's what, that's what happened to Christ on the cross. He was pinned down, about to be devoured by that, that great lion, Satan, as it were. So the innocent one here is fully exposed, drained of strength, nearly defeated, completely vulnerable. And then with his only worldly possessions, they become a game for these, these, these gamblers. They're all sitting around shooting dice, trying to see who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna take home this guy, the son of God's clothing. Mark 15, 24 says, They crucified him and, his, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. The innocent one was 
forsaking in the most humiliating way by the very ones he came to save. And now, in Psalm 22, verse 19, he looks up again. And this time, he will not look down again. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. Once again, the psalmist lifts his eyes to the heavens. And as I said, he will not look down again. He knows that God alone is his help, and he believes that God will rescue him. And for David, we don't know how he knew that God was going to rescue him. You know, if another prophet came, or if he had a vision or a dream, we just don't know. But for Jesus, we know. Jesus had come to die. It wasn't just an accident on that day in Jerusalem. He came to go to the cross. He knew he would be betrayed. He knew he would be crucified but he also knew that that would not be his end. Listen to Luke 9.22. This is Jesus speaking. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and his executioners surrounded him like a pack of wolves and they're hurling insults at him, he knew that he was going to die. But he also knew that death was not the end for him. He knew that the Father was going to raise him from the dead. So keep this in mind. As Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, he's not just quoting the first psalm, but as in rabbinic tradition, when you quote part of it, you think of the whole psalm and the message of it. The whole message is there's an innocent one who's forsaken, but he's not going to be forsaken forever. He is going to be delivered. And you can hear that confidence in Psalm 22. 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So Jesus is thinking this while he's hanging on the cross. I will tell of you, your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise his name. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Jesus knew that it is crucifixion, that it was not the end. He knew that he was going to be buried, that it was not the end. He knew that he would, verse 22, tell of God's name to his brothers. He knew that was going to happen. Yeah, you might kill me. Yeah, you might put me in the grave, but game's not over, baby. We're not done. He's coming back, and he did. He rose from the dead, and afterwards, he appeared to many. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to his disciples, and then 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to more than 500. Jesus was alive from the dead. 
raised victorious over sin, over Satan, and over death. He had gone to that place that we all must go, but he went to the grave as a sinless sacrifice. And then he was raised by God that he might give life to all those who would trust in him. But that's not where it ended. Because after Jesus raised from the dead, he told his disciples to take that good news and then to go and to make disciples of all the nations. He told them to proclaim this this gospel word to every tribe and every language and every nation to tell them that Jesus had suffered horrifically, that he had been forsaken, but that he had been forsaken for their sake and that he had been raised from the dead after three days. And we see that in verse 27 and following. Psalm 22, verse 27. (laughs) This is amazing. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Did you, did you hear what that said? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Remember what? Remember God's deliverance of his innocent servant. They're going to hear that he who was forsaken was not forsaken forever, but that he was delivered even from the jaws of death. And how far does it say it's going to go? To the ends of the earth. All the way to Nova. It's going to come all the way to here. To the ends of the earth they shall hear of Jesus' deliverance from death through the resurrection. And who will benefit from this deliverance? Who will hear about it and rejoice? Look at 30 and 31 again. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Who's he speaking about? Who were the people who were yet unborn when this was written that would hear one day about the way that God had rescued the innocent servant from the grave? It's people like us. That right now, as this psalm is being preached in our midst, God's word is being fulfilled. People who were not yet born when this word was written have come and have believed and have trusted in his righteousness. Just like God said that it would happen. And that's what's happening on this day all across the world. That for the past 2,000 years, the Christians, Christians remember that the grave is not the end for those who trust in the Lord. For those who will look to his great provision in Christ, that there is, there is hope after the grave. That God delivered Jesus and he will deliver any and all who will look to him who will turn away from their sin, and who will trust in Him, that we can have that same rejoicing. But Christians don't just celebrate it once a year. 
This is something that we do every week and every day and every moment. This is the very air that we breathe. It is the hope of God's people. That we do not serve a dead God, but we have a living God. One who is victorious over sin, Satan, death, and all tribulation and trial. That no matter what the suffering was, He he overcame. He overcame the grave. And He now reigns over every king and over every president and over every army. He reigns over those with abundance and those in poverty. He reigns over heaven and He reigns over earth. He reigns over life and He reigns over death. He is the glorious, victorious, risen Savior, the Son of God. The criminal, the one who was, became a criminal, was crucified and is now crowned with glory and honor as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what was Jesus thinking on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was not wondering where God was. He was waiting upon the God who is. He knew that he would be delivered. He was certainly forsaken. But he was forsaken for our sake. The sake of any and all who would ever trust in him. So this morning, if you are here and you either came knowing that you're not a follower of Jesus, or in the, in the time together you've become keenly aware that, that you and God, that things aren't, aren't right, that you have sin, and that if God were fair with you, that he would on that last day judge you for your sin. If that is, if that is you, we are thankful that you are here. Everybody who is in this room has, has been there. I lived that way for, for 21 years. But if you hear God's voice today through his word, do not harden your heart. Trust in the one who was forsaken for your sake. If you hear his voice this day, do not turn away. The scriptures say that today is the day of salvation. It's a day in which we can be rescued. Rescued from the judgment that is certain and the grave that awaits us all. Turn unto Christ. And if you are a Christian here this morning, if you know yourself to be a follower of Christ and you are, you are running after Him, I encourage you, let us often consider the one who is forsaken for our sake. That we do not get over the gospel. That the good news of Jesus isn't something that we just talk about once a year. It's not just tradition. It's not just, no, it's, it is the living truth it is, it is air to our souls. It is the very life that we breathe. We are a people who, who never get over the gospel. And I want you to know that in the days ahead, no matter what it is that you may face, if you are in Christ, you can know that even if, even if faithfulness to Him would require your death, you can know that as God did not forsake Christ, that if we are in Christ... Christ will not forsake us, and he will take us to be with him. I'll conclude with a brief story. In the year 1934 in China, where it was right after the Boxer Rebellion, and a missionary couple, 28 years of age, named John and his wife Betty, they were arrested by 
communists and sentenced to death for being followers of Christ. And they were mocked and beaten, much like their Lord. They were stripped down to their underwear to be shamed. And as they were being led away from where that had happened to the place that they were about to be beheaded, they sang and they prayed. And someone from the crowd mockingly yelled out to them, Hey, where are you going? And John, in full confidence, turned and looked with a smile that said, I'm going to heaven. And he did. No matter what we face in this life, no matter what trial or pain, even if faithfulness to Christ leads to our death, we will not be forsaken because Christ was forsaken for our sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise that you are the God who saves sinners. That you rescue rebels. That you deliver those who are destined to judgment. And Father, this morning we confess that we do not have hope because of any religious resume that we've got. We don't have any hope because we showed up this day or any other day. We have hope because He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So Father, we thank You that You forsook Your Son and that You raised Him from the dead. And we thank You that He willingly did it all. That we that we might be forgiven and reconciled to you. So God, give us hearts that love you and that trust in you no matter what. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.